continuing his push for support from Western allies, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visits America's neighbor to the north. Zelensky flew into Canada's capital late Thursday. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau greeted Zelensky at Ottawa's airport. Plus, Ukraine and Poland look to turn down the temperature in a rift over grain exports and military aid. Poland has until now been one of Ukraine's closest allies, taking in over one million refugees and providing Kyiv with significant military support. But amid an escalating dispute, Polish Prime Minister said no new weapons would be sent. And later in the program, we hear from Ukrainian families living on the front lines who have chosen not to leave home. Today is Friday, September 22nd. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. After a whirlwind visit to Washington, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is now in Canada. Associated Press correspondent Charles de Ledesma begins our coverage. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is to speak before the Canadian Parliament as part of his campaign to shore up support from Western allies for Ukraine's war against the Russian invasion. Zelensky flew into Canada's capital late Thursday after meetings with President Joe Biden and lawmakers in Washington, where he faced questions about the flow of American dollars that had helped keep his troops in the fight against Russian forces. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau greeted Zelensky at Ottawa's airport and will also speak to Parliament on Friday. It's Zelensky's first visit to Canada since Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. I'm Charles Diladesma. Zelensky wrapped up his U.S. public relations blitz for military support and for his 10-point peace plan with meetings on Capitol Hill at the Pentagon and in the Oval Office with President Joe Biden on Thursday. VOA's Anita Powell looks at the diplomatic, performative aspect of the Ukraine conflict from the stage that is the White House. Ukraine's counteroffensive is moving inch by painful inch to try to reclaim Russian-held territory. But the public relations blitz, led by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, is tearing its way from the United Nations in New York, where he appealed to the global community to embrace his peace plan, to Capitol Hill, where he appealed to legislators for $24 billion in aid to support the war effort, to the Pentagon, where military officials reaffirmed their support. And from there, to the biggest stage of all, the White House. He held his sixth in-person meeting with President Joe Biden on Thursday. And together with our partners and allies, the American people are determined to see to it that you do all we can to ensure the world stands with you. And that is our overwhelming objective. Today I'm in Washington to strengthen our coalition to defend Ukrainian children, our families, our homes, freedom and democracy in the world. And I started my day in the U.S. Congress to thank its members and to people of America for all the big, huge support. This trip to a capital thousands of miles from the front matters, analysts say. What Biden is doing by giving Zelensky this platform is saying these this this issue matters to us. This U.S. national interests are on the line here, and so we need to be paying attention to what Zelensky's saying and the the requests that the Ukrainians are making. On Thursday, Biden announced a new package of military assistance that includes air defense capabilities and artillery. VOA asked the administration if they fully support Zelensky's 10-point peace plan, which he has been shopping to world leaders for nearly a year. 
each of the individual elements of the peace plan, if you sat one of them down, sovereignty and territorial integrity, food security, ecological security, nuclear safety, um, to us it's not even a question whether we agree. Of course we do. These are just basic principles of the international system. They're consistent with the UN Charter, and we have said that President Zelensky's vision for a just peace is fully consistent with the United Nations Charter and with kind of decency and common humanity. But before there can be peace, Biden is asking Congress for $24 billion to fund Ukraine's war effort. On Thursday, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy remained noncommittal, but members of his party expressed support. They need it, um, and they're going to get it. I, I, I said, you know, the majority of the majority support this. I know there's some dissension on both sides, but I said a war of attrition is not going to win this. And that's what Putin wants, because he wants to break the will of the American people and the Europeans. We can't afford a war of attrition. We need a plan for victory, and we need to do it soon. That urgent question is something that resonates. From the ornate surroundings of the West Wing to the wasted wreckage that Ukrainians used to call home. How much longer can this go on? Anita Powell, VOA News, the White House. And time to visit by the president of Ukraine. The United States government Thursday announced it's sending an additional $328 million worth of weapons, including missiles, rockets, and artillery rounds to Kyiv for its defensive war against Russia. We hear details from VOA's chief national correspondent, Steve Herman, in Washington. After stopping on Thursday on Capitol Hill and at the Pentagon, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky held talks at the White House with President Joe Biden, who said Russia alone stands in the way of peace in Ukraine. Russia hopes once more to use winter as a weapon against the people of Ukraine. But as I discussed with President Zelensky, the people of Ukraine are steeled for this struggle ahead. And the United States is going to continue to stand with you. The Ukrainian president expressed his appreciation for the latest package of U.S. military aid. It has exactly what our soldiers need now. Zelensky has also been pushing for the United States to supply his military with long-range guided missiles capable of striking behind Russian front lines. Those weapons, known as attackums, are not in this latest round of supplies. Meanwhile, some Republican lawmakers say they do not want to authorize an additional $24 billion in military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine, noting a lack of significant progress against Russia by the Ukrainian army. Zelensky is quoted as telling senators earlier in the day, if we don't get the aid, we will lose the war. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. Poland Wednesday said it would stop giving weapons to Ukraine amid a continuing dispute over food imports. As Henry Ridgewell reports, some fear the row is exposing European divisions at a critical moment in the Ukraine conflict. Poland has until now been one of Ukraine's closest allies, taking in over one million refugees and providing Kiev with significant military support, including tanks and MiG-29 fighter jets. But amid an escalating dispute, Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki said Wednesday no new weapons would be sent. 
We are no longer transferring any weapons to Ukraine because we are now arming ourselves with the most modern weapons. The timing and tone of those words surprised many of Poland's allies. It echoed in a very negative way in the world. And what an average Ukrainian citizen would hear is that the Poles are going to stop helping them. Poland has played a key role in arming Ukraine. It's been pretty important in terms of generating uh, support to give uh, the more risky weapons platforms. So pushing the Germans and saying it was go it, Poland was going to give their give tanks to sort of push the Germans along with the UK and the similar one with fighter jets. The dispute began over Ukrainian grain imports. Poland, Hungary and Slovakia imposed unilateral bans last week, claiming the imports were undercutting their own farmers after temporary European Union restrictions expired. Ukraine lodged a complaint at the World Trade Organization. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said at the UN it was alarming to see how some in Europe are helping to set the stage to a Moscow actor. Poland summoned the Ukrainian ambassador. Polish President Andrzej Duda likened Ukraine to a drowning man. Of course we have to act in a way to protect ourselves from being harmed by the drowning one, because once the drowning man hurts us, it will not get help from us. Ukraine's agriculture minister said Thursday he had agreed with his Polish counterpart to work out a solution to the trade dispute. The United States played down the row, but Russia likely sees splits in Western unity, analysts say. It's not a good look, and of course that is how Russia will view it. And the question is, just do we give them any more evidence of it, or is that just a line drawn under it? Poland is due to hold elections next month. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is pushing through a major government reshuffle. Analysts say domestic politics Politics are driving the tensions. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. And for more on how Ukrainians are reacting to the tensions between Kyiv and Warsaw, I caught up with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. You know, we've been talking about this rift between uh, Ukraine and Poland and some of the decisions Poland has been making recently. But it sounds like both sides are trying to, to lower the temperature here. What can you tell us as far as from your perspective there in Ukraine? What it's seen here in Ukraine, of course, Ukrainians are sad about this because uh, Ukraine uh, always saw France and and great partners and allies uh, in Poland. So both sides are trying to minimize the consequences of this rift and find a solution. But just recently, President Duda said that he do not believe that this uh, grain export rift would deeply change relations between Poland and Ukraine and that he sees that Ukraine and Poland will remain friends and that Polish support to Ukraine will remain uh, on the same level. And at the same time, we see Ukrainian officials saying that emotions should be put upon and that Ukrainian uh, officials are looking forward to this solution. Here in Ukraine, uh, I can say that everyone hopes that it will be a solution and that things not going to get worse. At least from the inside of Ukraine, it looks like that both Poland and Ukraine are trying to find these solutions. 
turning to what's been happening on the ground with the actual uh, war, it looks like Ukraine made some moves over the last 24 hours. Yeah, so the main topic in Ukraine for today is definitely uh, that Ukraine launched a missile attack on Russia's Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Crimea in the city of Sevastopol. This was confirmed by the Russian uh, media sources and Russian uh, appointed officials in Sevastopol. Also, Ukrainian armed forces confirmed that they are responsible for this attack and that it was successful. And also what we can see from the footage from the inside of Crimea is that actually the heat was quite tough and uh, the whole building is on fire at the moment. So we will definitely keep an eye on that. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. An expert commissioned by the U.N.'s top human rights body says in her first report on Russia that the rights situation in the country has significantly deteriorated since President Vladimir Putin launched his war on Ukraine. Lisa Schlein in Geneva gives us a preview of the findings. The uh, special rapporteur of human rights in the Russian Federation has given her first report on the human rights situation in that country since the uh, invasion last February 4th, 2022. And it's a really harsh, damning report, I would say. It's kind of like a horror show, what she says, that repression against dissidents and civil and political rights in Russia has reached unprecedented levels since the invasion of Ukraine. And repression is something that is not a new phenomenon in Russia. It has been occurring over the past two decades. But she says that since this aggression by Russia in Ukraine, it has culminated in many ways. And the uh, government has been criminalizing what they perceive to be dissent and the lack of support for the war by censoring the internet and all kinds of media, independent media, also through state sponsorship propaganda and state-controlled information. The report also says over half of all protesters who were arrested for what it called peaceful anti-war activism were women. We'll hear more on the report from Lisa on Monday's Flashpoint Ukraine. It was International Day of Peace on Thursday, and on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly, the United States announced new initiatives to help consolidate the role women play in building peace and strengthening security around the world. We hear more from VOA's Veronica Balderas Inglesias, reporting from the United Nations General Assembly in New York. As world leaders continue to address the United Nations General Assembly, another event in New York, attended by high-level officials, focused on the critical role women play in peace-building around the globe and how to protect them from the threats they often face when doing so. Sima Bahus is executive director of UN Women. Rape and sexual violence in conflict continue with impunity. Women peacebuilders face reprisals for speaking out on atrocities. The real-world examples are all around us. In Afghanistan, where women are forced into the shadows and subjected to what many call rightly gender apartheid. In Sudan, the cries of women and girls seem sometimes to have been forgotten, despite ongoing suffering and atrocities. 
The importance of women being able to hold leadership positions and have equal and meaningful participation in decision-making processes was underscored by Romania's foreign minister, Luminitsa Odobescu. And in order for this process to be irreversible, education for gender equality and inclusion is key. Education of children and youth, paramount for a sustainable future, but also education of adults and professionals in different sectors, including those in security institutions. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced new initiatives to bolster the global fight for women's and girls' inclusion. One new way we'll do this is by supporting the WPS centers of excellence that are building connections between government officials and civil society leaders and helping them integrate gender perspectives into peace and security policies. The U.S. government will also release in the fall an updated national action plan on women, peace and security, Blinken added. It outlines how we'll incorporate the needs and the perspectives of women and girls into our own diplomacy, defense, development policies going forward in the years ahead. In less than a month, the annual report on women, peace and security will be presented to the United Nations Security Council. It will also highlight the need to broaden women's participation in peace-building efforts and lay out proposals to do so. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News. The United Nations. In 2024, four countries are scheduled to have elections that could shape how the second half of this decade could progress. They're the United States, the European Parliament, India, and the Russian Federation. VOA Steve Miller spoke with Adriana Bossani, Director of Analysis at RAIN, a strategic intelligence company, to discuss how what takes place in Moscow next year may affect the entire world. What do you see as the overall importance of these elections? Elections in, in terms of, of driving policy, driving international relations, and driving the interactions that people have around the globe. Yeah, um, we are talking about four of the largest economies in the world and four of the most impactful countries in the in the global arena. We are talking about, of course, the United States. States, um, the European Union, India, and Russia. We are talking about um, a population of roughly 2.3 billion people, a GDP of approximately uh, $42 trillion. Um, we are talking about countries that are willing to be active players on global affairs. And yes, it is a coincidence that the four of them are holding elections uh, in 2024. And I want to be clear about this. We are a bit generous um, when we talk about Russia as an election because <laughs> um, we all know that it's not uh, a proper election. And we know that um, Mr. Putin or someone he chooses will be elected with almost no real opposition. But um, it, it also fits the, the pattern of four big territories making leadership choices in, in 2024. Taking a look at the 2024 elections in Russia, uh, there is some concern whether or not they'll be free and fair with either Russian President Vladimir Putin obtaining re-election or perhaps a designate winning the election in his stead. Uh, what do you see as the potential impact for that election having on the world stage? Yeah, so uh, as you said, um, this is not going to be a free or competitive election Putin or somebody of his choice will win with little to no real opposition. But the interesting thing about what will happen next year is that the 
political process will be operating at a time when the social and economic impacts of the war in, in Ukraine are starting to be fully, fully felt. Um, there will be a big issue, which is whether or not Russia has to call for a widespread mobilization as they need extra men to uh, continue the war efforts in Ukraine. This would be an extraordinarily unpopular thing for Putin to do, even in the, in, the, in the context of an autocracy with little to no real opposition, it would be very unpopular. So this will probably, almost certainly, I would say, not happen before the election, but the chances of mobilization happening after the election uh, will increase because there is no end in sight for the war in Ukraine. Um, but perhaps more importantly for the future of global affairs, the election will not alter Moscow's assertive nationalism and its push to defend Russia's role as a global power. Quite the opposite, the, the, the election will have very strong nationalist, patriotic um, overtones with a very strong message that we are fighting for the motherland and they are protecting ourselves against our many, many enemies around the world, which means that um, the chances of the Kremlin ending its invasion of Ukraine are extremely low. And so are the chances of uh, a ceasefire with 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 Ukraine, um, let alone a peace treaty, which we don't see in the foreseeable future. Adriano Bossani, Director of Analysis at Strategic Intelligence Reign, speaking with my colleague Steve Miller. The city of Hulaipola in the Zaporizhia region of Ukraine is located just a few kilometers away from the front lines. And despite constant shelling, some residents and families with children are still living there. Eva Maranova spoke with one family about why they're staying. Anna Rice narrates the story. Shelling outside as a young girl attends an online class. Few families with children remain here in what's left of the town of Hulaipole, located in Ukraine's Zaporizhia region, just a few kilometers away from the front line. Now authorities are pressing those with children to leave. Unfortunately, some parents don't want to evacuate their kids for various reasons. But our priority is these children's lives, so we do and will continue to do everything in our power to evacuate the remaining children from Hulaipole. Two families with four small children remain in the city, among them the two daughters of Svetlana Filimonenka, a hairdresser at a local aid station. I'm scared. Only a fool would not be scared. But it's even scarier when you're at a place you don't know. Russian forces damaged the local Starlink station, so there's no reliable internet or connection at the aid station where Filimonenko works. Locals come here to charge their phones because there is a generator here. They can also have a cup of coffee and do laundry. But not everyone can get here. The city is being constantly shelled. There's shelling every day, more than once a day. People are a bit scared, scared to travel here or leave the station. When shelling starts, I don't let anyone out until it gets quiet. Filimonenko's 10-year-old daughter Miroslava studies online. Although Hulaipole hasn't had electricity in a while, the internet is still mostly available. Miroslava does schoolwork online. 
I'm not afraid, it's okay. But afraid or not, she has to leave. The government is ordering all children out of this very dangerous area. Filimonenka doesn't like it. I'm against it, but we are being forced to. I promise to take them away. Every day we pack a little, because if we get hurt at a place where they take us, who will be responsible? No one. Here at least I'm responsible for my kids. It's not clear when the family will be forced to evacuate. They are currently looking for a temporary place in the city of Zaporizhia, farther from the front line. In the last week alone, the government says over 20 children and their families have been evacuated from towns and cities in the region that are close to the front line. For Yeva Mironova in Zaporizhia region, Ukraine, NRI's VOA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America. Washington, Papa, Zip, DC.